Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Mr. Paul Morrissey on the topic, The Seven Deadly Sins versus the Beatitudes. This September 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Mr. Paul Morrissey is a lecturer in philosophy and theology at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. So, as uh, Arlette said, I'm going to be talking about the seven deadly sins, and um, which is usually quite an attractive uh, topic. Sin is usually attractive. And trying to link it, though, talking about each of the deadly sins in relation to one of the Beatitudes as it's like an antidote to the to the sin that you want to talk about. Um, just in the way of introduction, before I look at the seven deadly sins, in the way of an introduction, um, you know, I, I don't really need to tell you that uh, that um, sin in general is sort of passe today. I mean, it's not passe in practice, but uh, in theory, as in you know, people recognising that sin exists is very passe. Um, Back in 1946, Pope Pius XII said that the sin of this century, namely the 20th, is the loss of the sense of sin. Um, and I think that's pretty true, um, that we've lost that sense of sin. Um, now, the seven deadly sins, in fact, the seven deadly sins technically are not, there are not seven, they're not deadly, and they're not sins. So, just to clarify. Um, they're not seven because the original list way back in the third century by uh, St John Cassian, a famous uh, monk, he said there were eight. And even Gregory the Great, who was the next one to concentrate on deadly sins, also said there were eight. And St Thomas Aquinas, in a sense, said there's eight too. And when they say there's eight, they really divide pride. Pride is sort of the overarching sin. I'll talk about it in a minute, but underneath that they call vanity one of the other sins as well. So technically it is not seven. Um, they're also not deadly because uh, deadly is a more recent title we give these sins. The original title is capital, from the Latin capus meaning head, but these are the head vices, if you like. And they're not sins in the sense that we're talking about vices, not actual sin, but vices that lead to sin. In fact, um, the seven deadly sins, or these uh, capital sins, are not sins in and of themselves, rather they are distortions of the good. And, uh, so we'll explore that a little bit uh, afterwards. Um, now the seven deadly sins are... Uh, quite a popular topic, um, particularly in literature. Chaucer mentions the seven deadly sins. Dante in the, in the Divine Comedy, in Purgatory, Purgatory based on the seven deadly sins, and he has a mountain with each level one of the deadly sins. And, um, and his list is slightly different than the, than the list we normally have. He's, the worst sin is pride, and the least worst sin is lust. For uh, Dante, in his um, in his famous uh, poem, uh, Marlowe, Christopher Marlowe's uh, Doctor Faustus, that you know, has the seven deadly sins 
as one of its principal themes. Um, Brad Pitt and Morgan Friedman, the great artists <laughs> of recent times, the famous film Seven, based on the serial killer who based his murders on the seven deadly sins. I haven't seen that film, but uh, I don't know if it's theologically uh, deep, but it is based on the on the seven deadly sins. Um, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Is that got the? It's got the. You have to read the subtitles, you know. Oh, okay. But it mentions the seven deadly sins, yeah. but I don't know what it was. I should, I should note that down because that's another. But needless to say, the seven deadly sins are, are quite a popular sort of uh, thing. Um, also, as I've already mentioned, when we talk about um, them being sins, it's important that these uh, these sins aren't sins in and of themselves. So that nothing in its nature is evil. Rather, all of these sins are a distortion of the good. Something good has been distorted. So, with that little preface, I'm going to um, look at each of the, you know, the seven deadly sins, so-called. Um, now, the first is uh, is pride, and uh, and again, this is a this is a troublesome deadly sin for us uh, moderns or postmoderns because um, for many of us and for society in general, pride is considered a good thing. And uh, it must be said that uh, what we're talking about here with pride is the disordered or distorted love of the self. Um, we do have to love ourselves. So there is an ordered love of self, which is not pride. An ordered love of self is loving ourselves as God loves us, whereas this pride is the distorted love of self. <coughs> um, basically, the sin of pride is that my will is to be done and not your will, namely God's will to be done. And that's why it's considered the most basic or foundational sin. Um, and it's a sin really of the Garden of Eden. Um, Unfortunately today, as I said, pride is often considered more a virtue than sin. Um, and so it's, it's important for us to, to, um, to not kid ourselves when we look at pride. Because often we, we, we can be full of pride without actually recognising it. And this is important. Um, because one thing we're really good at as humans is deceiving ourselves. We're excellent at deceiving ourselves. And this is really true with pride. So underneath the statement, well, I'm not really proud, is probably a lot of pride. <laughs> and, um, and so this is really important for us to, to examine ourselves on this question. Even, you know, we often talk about, so we, we say, you know, I'm just no good at that. You know, I can't do that. With a sense of humility. But it's false humility. And false humility is pride. When we say I can't do something when we can, it's in a sense a form of pride and not loving ourselves as God loves us and not uh, being willing to, to give the gift that God has given us. Um, now the antidote to pride is, is the first beatitude. And, uh, so for each of, the, each of the deadly sins I'm going to give one of the beatitudes of its sort of uh, antidote or corresponding and I'm really I'm borrowing this shamelessly from Peter Kreef or most of them from Peter Kreef who has a little book 
on this topic. Um, so the first beatitude of blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, we can say blessed are the humble. So the key weapon in the fight against pride is humility, true humility. Um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, the great uh, reformer of the uh, Benedictine monasteries uh, the, the 13th century in France, he was asked, you know, what are the four cardinal virtues, St. Bernard? And he said, humility, 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 and humility. That humility is the ground and... Um, and source of all virtues, just as pride is the ground and, and source of all sin. Um, now, as Christians, we're we're often tempted to pride in in um, in different ways. I just want to mention a couple of them. Um, a common example for a Christian is to think, even very subconsciously, that that I'm better than than one of my fellow believers, or I'm better than you know, non-Christian. Um, it's a common temptation we have. Um, you know, I'm better than you know Joe Blow, who doesn't you know pray as much as I do, etc. Um, this is sort of a pharisaical sort of uh, pride that we can easily call praise of. Um, we easily fall prey to it because what we're doing is a good thing. You know, if we're really trying to practice our faith, it's a good thing. And we can tend to look down on anyone who's not practicing as we see that, you know, ourselves practicing. Um, another temptation, which is a particularly modern temptation, not just for Christians, but in the, in the world in general, is that we think we can actually, um, save ourselves. The idea that I don't need God, I don't need the church, I don't need this, I don't need that. I can save myself. Um, and this is a very modern form of spiritual pride. Um, you know, the, the, um, the hymn of this uh, sort of church of self-salvation is, um, you know, Frank Sinatra. You know, I did it my way uh, would, be, uh, would be an example of this. We forget that we're actually saved by God, by God's mercy. That each of us is a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. And um, and this is this is basic Christian humility. Just a question on that. Interesting, you mentioned about I can save myself. Is that the philosophy of a certain um, Freemason cult, or is that they because they believe, they seem to be believing in some sort of rationality of the mind? And that's what Father Parkwa said a few months ago. Yeah, it's certainly part of the, the New Age sort of idea, I would think. I mean, I, I'm not a, I don't know a lot about Freemasonry, but it probably is caught up in that as well. And it's even just in, in very... Even as, as Catholics, we can fall into that trap. Of, you know, I, I can work out my own path to salvation. Even in very subtle ways, we can have that mentality. Um, but certainly in the modern world, most people seek salvation in, in often worldly things that, that they think will save them, make them happy, fulfilled. Um, I think a great example of, 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 of this need for complete uh, humility in the face of God's mercy is, is the good thief. 
Um, you know, the good thief is obviously a man who is sent. You know, he's not uh, he's not a good man in a sense. He's uh, he has sinned. He's done wrong, and he's paying for his crime justly, as he says. Um, but although a great sinner, he cries out for mercy to Christ because he recognised Christ as saviour. And he is forgiven in an instant. In a sense, he's the first saint canonised by Christ himself on the cross. Um, and as Catholics, we, we can take this, this good thief as a model for ourselves in this uh, pursuit of humility. Um, and in the great sacrament of uh, confession, because this is our, our way to remain humble. Regular confession is the, is the uh, one sure way to remain humble that I can't save myself, that, that I am in need of God's mercy and forgiveness always. Um, so pride is the, is the greatest sin, the, the source of all the other sins. The second sin, in, traditionally in the, in the list of sins, um, Dante puts this next sin um, closer to the top of the mountain, up with lust. Um, his, his order, which is interesting, he, his order is the spiritual sins are first, so pride, um, envy and wrath, he says, are the first three. Sloth is the bridge into the earthly deadly sins of, um, of avarice, greed and lust. So he has that order. Because the other more traditional order with St Gregory the Great is pride and then the second is avarice. Um, as St Paul writes to Timothy, um, avarice is, is in a sense the root of all evil. So some, some spiritual writers call avarice the greatest sin. So avarice or greed is the second of the deadly sins. Again, avarice takes a good thing, so pride takes a good thing of ourselves, it distorts it. Avarice takes a good thing of earthly material things and distorts it. And Aquinas says that avarice is the inordinate desire for temporal goods that can be measured in money. Um, the deadliness of avarice lies in the fact that it leads us to worshipping a false false God, a false idol, money and material goods, and not God himself. Um, so it takes the good of created things and distorts them into something they're not, into, a, into an end rather than a means. So it's obviously it's a good thing to earn money to support ourselves and our families, um, but when it, this desire becomes inordinate, when we live for money, um, this is where it gets problematic. Now there are two types of avarice, two types of greed that we need to be wary of. Um, there is greed for what we do not have. That's the first type. So I gre I'm greedy because you know, you know, Jim's pen there's you know, beautiful silver pen. Obviously writes well, costs him a lot of money. You know, I have this. You know, an inordinate desire for that pen. The point I might steal it later. You know, um, so in here it's basically desiring something that I haven't got, and we all have that. Most of us would have a car that she, I'd love that car. Well, most of us would have a particular house, maybe, or a particular dream sort of lifestyle. 
We don't have it, but I desire it. And it can become disordered. That's the first type. Second type of greed is uh, protecting that which we already have. So I asked Jim, Jim, can I just borrow your pen? No, no, no way. So we hoard things to ourselves and, and don't share. There's two types. One is that which we don't have, and the second that which we have but don't wish to, to share. Um, so to combat the first type of greed, what we need is to cultivate in our lives is a sense of simplicity um, and critique carefully what society tells us we need. It's incredible, isn't it? Like, uh, I was thinking the other day um, when I was speaking to some students and they had, you know, they had their iPhone out, their laptop, uh, everything was wireless, they were just doing everything, you know, checking emails. And now I thought back to when I was doing my undergraduate studies, uh, Back, it wasn't that long ago. It was in the uh, it was in the uh, early 90s, and I was I was handwriting my essays, and uh, you know email didn't exist. Um, there was no there was no. You go into a library, and there might have been a, one old computer there to you know to search for something. But it's incredible how things have changed, and yet we all think I need that. I need. It. In some ways, we may need it, but. It's interesting how society tells us we need things. And yet, as Christians, in a sense, we should really critique that which society tells us we have to have. Um, You must have that. If you don't have that, well, you're not really human. So we need to to cultivate a sense of um, really asceticism in our lives, simplicity, um, and critique society. It also, aesthetic practices obviously like uh, fasting um, will also help us to, and I'll speak more about that when we look at gluttony, but also helps us to be detached from the material world. To combat the second type of greed, we need to cultivate and practice generosity. Now, most of us, most Christians are generous, you know, or they they understand that they have to be generous. but often we can be fairly stingy in our giving and we'll, and we'll give that which doesn't feel right. But to overcome avarice, we need to give a part of ourselves or a part of that which we own, which will actually, you know, cause a little bit of damage in a sense. Well, gee, I don't really want to give that much. But I will because it's what I should do. And this is really important. Obviously, the traditional practice adding way back to Abraham, of giving 10% as a tithe, in a sense, for the, for the church, or, is, is an important aspect of this important truth. I read a, read a really good article about uh, avarice that uh, spoke about how actually generosity, sometimes we can be real, really uh, greedy in our generosity. And by greedy, we say, look, you know, charity comes to our door and says, look, can you give me 10 you know, Give $10 to help. And you'll say, well, can you tell me exactly where this $10 is going to go? Because I want to know that my $10 will, you know, get to that. But that might be a valid point. It is a very valid point. But it also, sometimes we can take it to extremes where we where we say, this is my $10. I'll make sure I'm going to follow it all the way to make sure it, you know, does what I want it to do. Actually, to cultivate generosity, sometimes it's good to be generous and not sort of count the costs, sort of to, 
to give something and say, well, I've given that. And, you know, maybe it, it won't work, maybe it won't help. To be generous in a, in a, in a, in a generous spirit is, is important. It's not to say, it's a good point, it's not to say that, you know, you shouldn't critique that which you give, particularly bigger sums. But sometimes when some guys, you know, may walk up and say, look, they give me five dollars, you say, well, mate, you know, yeah, then, then somebody could be greedy and take advantage of your predisposition to generosity and then it may, instead of going it to the cause that it's supposed to go, it's going in an admin first. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of charities, you know, I wouldn't give to. But I think it's, it's more in the sense, what I'm talking about here is more in the sense that sometimes we can analyse too much our giving. And when we analyse too much, we're sort of almost too attached to what we're giving. But sometimes it's good to actually give, um, particularly... Yeah, when you know it's something good, you can just give it. Even if it's to it, you may give anonymously to a friend who you've heard, you know, needs some money, rather than say, you know, look, I'll give you some money. You just, uh, you know, put some in his letterbox. You know, it can be a really, real generous spirit that, uh, you know, he may go and spend it on some bets, you don't know. But um, it's a generous spirit, and, and it's important to cultivate that. Um, so those. Those are two ways that we can overcome that. But the Beatitude um, that that sort of, in a sense, looks at this um, idea of, of avarice is um, blessed of the merciful. Because mercy, mercy is the is when we give to someone who doesn't deserve what we give. Mercy is giving to someone who doesn't deserve it. Justice demands, God's justice demands that, you know, I can't really be saved. I'm, I'm really a sinner. God's mercy presumes justice but goes beyond it. Gives to that, or gives to whom, you know, uh, or to the one who doesn't actually deserve it. And so when Christ is blessed of the merciful, in a sense he's helping us to overcome this by being generous even to those who don't deserve our, um, our material goods. Okay, the third, the third uh, deadly sin is envy or jealousy. And St Thomas says that envy is sorrow at another's good. Sorrow at another's good. And envy is the only deadly sin, really, that's not very alluring. You know, it's not very attractive. All that envy does is give sorrow. It just provides resentment and suffering. Um, why is envy deadly? Well, the vice of envy is deadly because it cuts at the heart of family and community life. Whenever there's envy, it leads to deep resentment. It can lead, ultimately, to hatred, which is that mortal sin. So this is why we need to be careful with envy. How do we overcome envy? Christ said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Now this is the Beatitude that concerns suffering and compassion which means to suffer with someone. Therefore, if we're compassionate, we will share another's sorrow. 
Remember, Sir Thomas's definition of the envious person is someone who's sorrow, sorry at another's good. The one who is mournful or compassionate is the one who is going to share the other's sorrow. And this is why um, this beatitude can can act as the, if you like, the antidote to envy. Um, as I said, envy is a, dead, is a deadly sin because it cuts at the heart of community life, the life of the church, the life of uh, groups, particularly the life of families. Um, I'm always touched by the example of uh, Saint Therese Lisieux, who, um, during a life in the Carmel, was uh, often had a struggle with a particular different sisters, but. Um, but there was one particular sister uh, who she really struggled with. And um, this sister annoyed her because she'd make noises often in the chapel and would annoy her. And, uh, and she was really struggling with this sister. Um, and through prayer, Therese learned to love this sister, made a decision to love this sister. Um, and to actually expect the noise in the chapel and, so, and learn actually to appreciate it, to learn to, to love it. This is the sister I'm called to love. And it transforms her relationship with this, uh, with this sister. And when Therese died, and you know, she died very young, um, this noisy sister, it was recorded, uh, believed she was the most loved by St. Therese. She was St. Therese's favourite. And in a sense, she was right. I mean, you know, on a human level, it wasn't true, but on a deep spiritual level, it was true that she loved her the most. So we need to cultivate this um, this ability to to not envy the other um, and to and to love the other. The fourth deadly sin is uh, anger or wrath in the traditional English wrath. This is the inordinate desire to be vindicated or to seek vengeance. Um, so we need to clarify and distinguish different types of anger. Um, now the deadly sin of anger is not the emotion of anger that we sometimes feel. We all feel it every day. We have an emotion of anger. We suffer anger, so we don't ask it to happen. You know, we don't say, you know, we'll plan our week ahead Thursday at three o'clock. I'm going to get angry. Um, so it's like any of the emotions, passions, we suffer with passion. We don't plan to fall in love, we don't plan to get angry. It happens to us. Now that emotion is not a deadly sin. Um, nor is uh, anger when it's just a sin. Christ is justly angry in the temple. It's a just anger, a rightful anger, a righteous anger. And sometimes we're called to be righteously angry. When we see an injustice, we're called to be angry, and that's not a deadly sin. So the emotion, nor the just anger, is not not deadly. What is deadly is when we take particularly the emotion of anger, or even a just anger, and we distort it. It becomes disordered in terms of proportional uh, reaction to what has happened. For me, this often happens in, in when driving. So you, you're driving your car 
a bit of traffic, you've just missed one light and then you've just missed another one. The traffic's building up and it's finally a clear run and um, you get behind a vehicle that you know you can't see the driver because it's pretty old and he's driving so slow. <laughs> it's clear before you you, start, you know the anger's building. You start to you know shake and you know you, you're building up and then suddenly he puts his blinker on and he's going to turn right and all the traffic's coming and suddenly you're exploding. You know, you're swearing and you're carrying on making signs and it's completely irrational compared to the driver. It's just you know, it's obviously not deliberately trying to hurt you. So road rage is a classic example. Yeah. I've never got out of the car. It's interesting though, Paul, you never heard of the term road rage 30 years ago. Absolutely true. So and, I find that fascinating and too. It probably did exist, but you can be quite sure that it's a lot more prevalent now than it was 30 years ago. Absolutely. So what's gone wrong? I think we're far less patient. Mm. My, um, my theory on, uh, on that is that we're so used now to just pushing a button and things happening, even with TVs. Like I, I wonder, so when I go to visit my brother in Melbourne, he's got this TV system, you know, this massive TV with this remote control. It's like that big. And every time he picks it up, it seems to be a problem, you know, getting a picture or changing a channel. And he's just, you know, he's so angry. and Because he's just so used to, you know, and I was saying, well, why don't you just get one of those old tallies where you just <laughs> turn the knob, you know, it's pretty easy, it's push the button. And, and we're just so used to that, that it's, we've become, you know, even on the roads, we just, and the roads hasn't changed, there's still red lights, still. But it's fascinating, I, I agree, you know, you see, I, you occasionally see road rage and you think, my goodness, you know, that wouldn't have happened you know, 20, 30 years ago. So it's, it's part of a societal malaise. But I think it's a good example of this this deadly sin of anger where, you know, things, you know, we have emotional, you know, it's normal. Where, but when it gets, you know, consumes us and then we react disproportionately. And obviously anger is deadly when it's, you know, you sock the guy in the mouth, you know, and uh, where it leads to hatred, you know, murder, you know, whatever it is. Uh, anger is also like envy, uh, destroy of communities, destroy of uh, families, um, etc. There's two beatitudes, because uh, it obviously there's nine beatitudes, so we have to double up on a couple. There's two beatitudes here, uh, obviously blessed are the peacemakers, it goes without saying. That, um, today we often talk about peacemakers as you know world leaders or but really, peacemaker is the one who has peace in their heart. If you don't have peace in your heart, try to cultivate peace in your heart, uh, there's not going to be a lot of other peace around you. And so this is the key for this beatitude. Um, and the other, the other beatitude that, that is the antidote here is, blessed are the meek. Um, and sometimes we translate, blessed are the gentle which is sometimes a good translation, sometimes not. In a sense, we think meek equals weak, which it's not. Meek, really, in its uh, in essence, is is more closer to, I would think, uh, the idea of chivalry. It's being known, being or being able to direct one's anger, one's strength, in a to the good. So you know the example of a. 
a medieval knight who's just and holy could, you know, destroy the enemy while protecting those who are innocent. And that, that would be the aim. The same in, in our spiritual life, in a sense, being strong and just when needed to be, and even in actions, while respecting the innocent and, and, and etc. So, blessed are the meek is a good antidote to, to anger being deadly. In fact, just anger is a form of meekness, in a sense. So what was the anger that Jesus expressed when he was in the temple? A just anger. There was an injustice there. So uh, we owe God justice is to what you owe someone. We owe God good worship. If you're selling money in the temple, selling things in the temple, that was an injustice. Justice demanded an angry sort of response. So it's like if we see a see a, a crime being committed, you know, we can be angry. You know, anger is called for in that situation. So that's why we call it a just anger. So often you hear about it, you know, you know oh, Jesus, Jesus sinned, you know, he was, you know, he was angry. But anger is, in fact, can be is a just response. Not always, but. <laughs> On that note, I went to a Lenten program many, many, many years ago, and they said, you see, Jesus lost control in the temple. Yeah. So even he, mm. even he was susceptible to losing control. Mm. So we have to forgive ourselves. I mean, how distorted can you get? I know. You know. I mean, it's understandable today, though, because because when people think that if you're angry, that's not a good thing. Mm. And um, so even in Christola, you might have heard this too, Robert. Often he's, oh, but Jesus sinned. You know, he's angry in the temple. <laughs> so you always have to say, well, no, it's not a sin to be angry. It's a just anger. And um, in fact, he was called to be. Now he would have experienced the emotion there. He would have, no doubt, he had emotion, and that's. But he directed that, in a sense of meekness, really, into the into a just response to the. Uh, to that's the, something we don't hear about because. It, we, you talked about channeling meekness. Could you elaborate on that? Uh, it's sort of more or less channeling, you know, that which, you know, the good, you know, that, you know, you're, you're seeking the good. So you, you know, you're trying to sort of channel your emotions to, to that. Um, and, and it's where you're integrated, basically. Where, you know, there's a, there's a just response required and, if we translate it just as gentle, it's like, oh, I'll, I'll just sort of sneak away and I'll not worry about it. Whereas the, we're actually called to, to go in. Not to go in like Charles Bronson in the Death Wish movies. Death Wish up to 10, I think he wiped out most of you know, the United States. That's an, you know, that's an unjust response. We're going to go in and, and be able to, to be just in that situation. So, like a knight, he could he may have had to be violent, you know, in a, in a just cause, uh, while always respecting the innocent. Okay, the next uh, sin, sloth. What a great uh, name, title uh, for a sin, sloth. Um, this is probably the least known deadly sin, or capital sin. And this is what St. Thomas calls sorrow about spiritual good. 
sorrow about spiritual good. Um, the Desert Fathers, in fact, called this the, the worst thing for them. They called it the noonday devil because they get up in the morning and have their morning prayer and they'd be feeling good. Uh, when the sun got hot, they'd look, in a sense, to the city and think, look at that nice cool bath, nice big meal, you know. <laughs> A nice, uh, nice comfort. And they'd suddenly be feeling sorrowful at spiritual goods and, and wanting to be out of there. So I don't want to pray. I just want to get back to the city. This was the great, you know, Cassian says this is one of the most difficult sin or difficult, uh, area for the desert fathers. So it's sorrow, sorrow about spiritual good or laziness about spiritual good, really. Um, Spiritual laziness. So it's not laziness in itself. You know, laziness isn't a good thing. But that's not, it's not necessarily deadly. You know, to sleep in is not a deadly sin. Um, but to not say your prayers can be a deadly sin. Um, so spiritual sloth is disinteresting God, basically, in the spiritual life. Um, it's, it's a very modern sin. It's everywhere today. I mean, we just look around. Most people don't realise it, but everyone just is, is in constant, uh, is constantly seeking to be entertained and distracted. That's the that's the modern modern person or the contemporary person is a distracted person. If I'm not being distracted, I'm bored. Um, boredom is the primary symptom of sloth. Why is that? Because um, God can never be boring. God can never be boring. So, so many in our, particularly, you know, when you're speaking to younger people, I'm so bored. I can't sit still for five minutes, you know, without you know, doing something. I want to be distracted. Um, it's, it's, it's a really a symptom of, of sloth. So sloth is deadly because it robs us of our zest for God, our zeal for God, for seeking after God and doing God's will. Um, the great saint of the Holy Spirit, St. Ephraim of Syria, he was called, he was sometimes known as the harp of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he also acknowledged sloth as a great threat to Christian life. And although tempted throughout his life by this sin, he, uh, he fought valiantly against it. And on his deathbed, he, he wrote a poem. I'll just read it to you. It's sort of like a, an ode against sloth. I, Ephraim, am dying and writing my testament to be witness for the pupils who come after me by constantly praying day and night as a ploughman who ploughs again and again whose work is admirable. Do not be like the lazy ones in whose fields thorns grow. Constantly praying for he who adores prayer will find help in both worlds. Now the beatitude that uh, that is the antidote to sloth is the when Christ says, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness." Righteousness, in this sense, is holiness. Sloth is disinterest in holiness, the blessed hunger and thirst for holiness. 
So to cultivate this hunger, we need to pray and be faithful to prayer. Um, and this is obviously very difficult for contemporary man. Um, we just constantly seek distraction, and prayer seems to be the um, the uh, exact opposite to what we're seeking. To be silent with God. Um, to spend time in prayer in God is is um, is very difficult for contemporary man, and for ourselves. It's hard for us. Um, I'm not saying it would have been easier in the 15th century, but I think it may have been. Uh, there would have been less distraction in a sense. Um, and uh, so we, we find it difficult. Also, we find it difficult, I think, this area of the spiritual life because, because death for us seems to be, in society anyway, something we don't speak about or is a hidden thing in many respects, death that most of us don't think about eternal life too much. I'm not saying by most of us, I mean you know, society. They don't really speak about eternal life or even trying to think about eternity or God or prayer. Uh, so we just want to be distracted and distracted and we think we're going to have an eternity of distractions. Um, and really this is a spiritual swath, even if people don't realise it. So to overcome spiritual sloth, we need faithfulness in prayer. All right. Oh, sorry. Yep. Um, there's the couch potato sloth too. Yes, there is that one. I was thinking more today, it seems to me, there's, there's uh, the more common idea today, I think, is the distracted <laughs> one, but certainly there is that, the lazy, the, the, you know, the old norm sort of who sits around and just doesn't do anything. I mean, that's still around. Um, it's harder to just sit around and not do anything today, though. But it's, uh... yeah, because there's the duties. We, I mean, we're duty bound as well. That's part of what we have to do as as, um, as good Christians. We have to we have to work. Saint Paul said, "Those who don't work don't get fed." Yes, right. I mean, that's that's absolutely true. Although sloth technically is more about the spiritual laziness, but I mean they're, they're intertwined. Although you can work so hard that you don't actually pray, so that's be a problem. So the sixth deadly sin is lust, or the inordinate desire for sexual pleasure, um, which is obviously seen to be the most glamorous and famous of the deadly sins. If you ask, when I ask students, you know, what are the seven deadly sins? I say lust. <laughs> And they don't know any others. <laughs> They've heard of lust. Some of them get anger. But the rest they struggle with. Pride, pride's not a sin. Um, but anyway, they always get lust. So like the other deadly sins, lust turns a good uh, sexual act into a sinful tendency. Um, obviously the deadliness of this sin is that it turns another person into an object, and in some cases an idol as well and dehumanises us. Um, although it's deadly, it's not, as I said before, it's not considered the worst of the deadly sins. Often people think it is the worst. Uh, most people would say, well, it's very common, but it's not the worst. And, and as, Dante, as I said before, Dante had it as the least. Uh, usually it's the sixth or the second last, but he had it as the least. Um, 
In fact, many of the great spiritual writers, and even St Thomas, he says, St Thomas himself says that God will often let us fall in this area um, because it's the sin that gives us the greatest sense of shame. And this helps us overcome pride, which is a greater sin. Um, now, obviously, again, not to harp on our difficulties being contemporary persons, but uh, it's far more easier for us, far easier for us to uh, be bombarded with uh, lust than in previous generations. So, uh, even if I'm, you know, having uh, young children, I'm, I'm just amazed now at, um, you know, even if I watch the football on a Saturday with the boys, I just have to turn, after a goal, I have to turn the TV off. Because I'll have some ad for uh, Desperate Housewives on, you know, <laughs> in the afternoon, you know, with half-naked women. And I'm like, well, you turn it off. Is there a government bus at the moment which doesn't have a half-naked woman on it at the moment? Mm. Yeah, I know. So it's just unbelievable. You, you talk about degrading women, and here is a government that, you know, is led by a political party which has always espoused equality and, you know, female liberation. Yet all their government buses are plastered with women. I mean, it's scantily clad, and I've never seen it with uh, such intensity before. No. I mean, it's, it'd be funny, you know, if it's not so sad, because it's just... Yeah, I'm just, I'm just so struck by that. You know, it's so hard today, because it's it's sort of... It's not just, you know, that it's available for those... It's just everywhere in your face. That you just can't... But even this morning news show, I never watched the TV, but I had it on this morning, and they had half-naked women and men. And this was, like, simply this morning. Oh. And children would have seen that. Just a habit, a habit. Yeah. But even like, I mean, there's, yeah, there's TV, which is terrible, but even the fact that you see it on the bus, I mean, you can't do anything about the bus. Yeah, at least you turn TV off. But well, what about the, the posters on the, you know, as you're travelling along the road, not only buses, but, you know, do you want more of, you know, what? Oh, no, no. Well, there was a big sign on the now Notre Dame building there for a long time. Thankfully, it's not there at the moment. Apparently, it could come back because we don't own that sign. Does the university have control over No, we don't. Ties on that? No. Really? Because the lease had been sold a long time ago and separate to the building. I don't know. That Last I heard, they didn't say. But I haven't seen that sign since, so maybe they negotiated no, to have that sign. It's there because it was there on uh, Wednesday. It's oh, really? got a red poster on the top. That's the new building, isn't it? Yeah, the Pioneer House. Yeah. yeah. But they haven't had the sixth one on there for a while. So it is harder for us um, today in that sense, because uh, we are bombarded. Um, now the, the attitude here is, uh, when Christ says, blessed are the pure of heart, which obviously makes sense. The pure of heart. The pure of heart, as the Beatitude says, see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Because they follow God's will. In fact, their will and God's will are married together. That's why the blessed see God. Um, but for each of us, we need to cultivate um, need to cultivate a sense of, of, uh, of being able to protect ourselves, our senses, our imagination. But obviously, for, for our children particularly, 
in the formative years of growing up when if lust takes root as a vice, it can be very difficult to to eradicate because once it becomes a vice, it's the opposite to a virtue, which is uh, almost a vicious. Um, and obviously we need to model ourselves on Mary, who is the purest of all God's creatures, um, whose will was perfectly united to God. And the last deadly sin... Um, the last of the list is gluttony, inordinate desire for the pleasures of food and drink. Um, now, gluttony is probably the easiest for us to dismiss. It's like, oh, it's really a sin. Except, you know, that Monty Python film, uh, The Meaning of Life, the guy ate himself to explosion. Um, we often think, well, it's not really deadly. However, it's part of our tradition that we, we rank this as a, as a deadly sin. And, and in a sense, it's like avarice, but with food and drink. It's where with food and drink becomes almost an idol for us. It becomes an obsession or something which we becomes almost an end for us rather than a means. Um, it's sort of, it's actually one sin today that sort of has some currency, isn't it? That, uh, you know, concepts about health, fitness, you know. All that sort of thing seems to say, well, you know, most of society thinks this is a sin as well. Uh, not spiritual, though, more physical, obviously. Um, there are two ways, a bit like average, there's two ways here that we can fall into gluttony. One is the obvious, eating and drinking too much, but becoming obsessed with food that we eat too much. We won't just have one, we'll have two and so on. So on. Won't have one drink, we'll have six. Um, but there's also an avarice, oh, sorry, not an avarice, but a, a gluttony in the sense that we'll only eat and drink the finest things. You know, we'll have an obsession with the finest food, with the finest wine, and become obsessed with that. And, uh, that's a form of gluttony as well. Now, food, the Catholic tradition obviously has two pillars in terms of, of, uh, of fighting gluttony. Um, for both of these forms, uh, and that is fasting and feasting. Um, our, our liturgical year is punctuated with times of fast and, and feasting. The fasting is, is to help us not eat too much, and specific times of feasting helps us to indulge in the finest food and drink. It's a way of praising God. And, you know, the great European cultures have this really embedded in them that uh, you at Easter, you bring out your finest food and drink because Christ is risen and we should celebrate it. Um, so this is, this is important. Now, for the Beatitude here, it's a little bit, uh, it's, it's a bit more difficult to tie it in, but we'll give it a go. Um, the Beatitudes are the last two because you know, we've got nine, so we need to double up on two. The last two are to do with persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted who seek righteousness and blessed are those who are persecuted for the name, for the sake of Christ. So why, why this beatitude? Because food and drink, we, we sort of, you know, we have a right to food and drink, don't we? We have a right to it. We need it to survive. So if you don't have enough food and drink, well, someone should give it to you because that's, that's a sort of a natural right we have. 
part of you know surviving. We need food and drink. Um, when we're full of gluttony, though, we we take more than we need. We just you know we want more and more and more. When we're persecuted for righteousness or for Christ, that which is owed to us is taken away. That which is our natural right, like our if we're imprisoned, our freedom. If uh, if we're imprisoned, you know. Our nice morning cereal because we get you know, porridge instead. Or if we're if we're uh, you know our good name. If today it's more probably our good name that maybe we're persecuted with. People you know ridicule us maybe for being Christian. Um, we have a right to our good name. But it's taken away. So this is in a sense an antidote to gluttony because it helps us appreciate uh, what we have a right to or the fact that we're actually. Going to give that up for Christ and for righteousness and holiness. Okay, so just a just a way way of conclusion. Um, why is it good to know about the seven deadly sins? Well, I think, in fact, um, I've I've made it a practice of mine using the seven deadly sins as as an examination of conscience because um, obviously being the seven heads, if you like, of all vices. We can usually find one of our sins or our sinful tendencies in one of them. And depending on who we are, we'll often be more prone to one of these uh, vices than others. Either through our education, our personality. You know, some of us get angry quicker than others, unjustly. Some of us are more lustful than others, so on and so forth. So it's good to be aware of that, and so we can actually work on that with the grace of God, through confession particularly. Um, so the seven deadly sins can really help us as a way, like a diagnostic tool, like an X-ray. In a sense, we go before an X-ray to really sh- shine light on on that which is not well. And um, the seven deadly sins can really help us. Um, but that sounds like sorry. What's this? Oh, can help us. Yes. Don't take that out of context. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Um, it's, it's, uh, yes. Thinking about them, understanding them, not actually practicing them can help us. Yes. <laughs> it's what, it, what you should say when you give this, if you give a talk on the seven of these things, you shouldn't say that you're an expert on this topic. Because, uh, you quickly discredit yourself. Um, also, I think um, you know one of the great treasures of Catholic uh, Christian practice and Catholic uh, Catholic growth in the spiritual life is to be aware of our sinfulness because this cultivates humility. Um, we need to be aware of our sinfulness to allow, in a sense, the Lord's grace to work in us. Uh, if we shut the door to grace. Uh, by, you know, through pride, by not acknowledging our sin, then we can uh, be really started in our spiritual growth. The great French Catholic writer Charles uh, Piguet, he wrote uh, the following, which sort of sums this up. It's because the man was on the ground that the Samaritan picked him up. It's because Jesus' face was dirty that Veronica wiped him with a veil. It's the one who has not fallen will not be picked up and the one who is not dirty will not be made clean. So in a, in a way, when we confront our sinfulness, we come before God 
as the guy sort of battered on the ground, needed him picking us up. Or, um, you know, the uh, the sinner in need of Christ's mercy, and uh, and that's important. The seven deadly sins is a way to, to help us to you know understanding them, understanding them at work in our life um, is is a is a way to, to help us grow. And um, and Christ is the divine physician, and he, he wants to heal us if we allow him. And, uh, that's an important point. And I'll finish with that. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Mr. Paul Morrissey. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.